One Hope Church. All right, good morning, everybody. Hope you're doing well. Hope you enjoyed your extra hour of sleep this morning, if you were fortunate enough to get it. Um, but in any case, it's just wonderful to be here to worship the Lord together. And just thinking about that last song that we were singing, that God is good and that um, you know He's never going to let us down. And I just wanted to... Um, to think about that this morning in the context of uh, the book of Nehemiah. We're going to start the book of Nehemiah this morning um, and try to tackle chapters 1 and 2 of that great book that's such an encouragement to us. And, you know, I think that there's points in in, in our lives where we are at least tempted to think that God has let us down. But God has not let us down. Um, You know, there are consequences for living in a sinful world, there are consequences um, for our own sin. There are difficulties that we experience, um, you know, in this life, and there are things that we certainly won't understand until later in life, or perhaps until um, after our time on this earth is done. But God is good, and He does not let us down. So, I just want us to be reminded of that um, this morning. So again, this, uh, this morning we're going to be in the book of, um, of Nehemiah, and just um, wanna, I'm going to give some context for that as we, as we read um, together, and just um, want be to be an encouragement to us. So let's, uh, let's go to the Lord um, in prayer, and then we will get started, okay? So let's, let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your many uh, blessings to us. We thank you for your goodness um, to us, God, uh, your great love for us. We're thankful for each one um, who is here and for those in our, our church family that couldn't be here this morning. We, Lord, ask that you would bless each one. May we be united in your Son and in your Spirit and in your truth, um, dear God. Please give us understanding, encourage our hearts this morning from your word, but also help us to apply it practically um, to our lives. And Lord, we thank you and and love you um, in your name, Jesus. Amen. Amen. So this morning we're in the book of Nehemiah. So if you have your Bibles with you or you have it on your if you have it on your app, you can just tap in Nehemiah and it's there. If you have your your printed Bible, we had just finished our study in first and second Samuel. So then you have first and second Kings. First and Second Chronicles, Ezra, Nehemiah. Um, you get to Esther and Job and Psalms. You've gone just a little bit too far. You can back up, um, and it'll be there. So let's um, let's begin. We're going to read chapter one. It's just eleven verses, and then I'm going to explain more of the context of this of this story, and and we'll get into um, digging a little bit deeper with it. Um, but So let's just begin by reading it in chapter 1. It says, The words of Nehemiah, the son of Hakaliah. Now it happened in the month of Chislev in the 20th year while I was in Susa, the capital, that Hananiah, one of my brothers, and some men from Judah came, and I asked them concerning the Jews who had escaped and had survived the captivity and about 
Jerusalem. And they said to me, The remnant there in the province who survived the captivity are in great distress and reproach, and the walls of Jerusalem, the wall of Jerusalem is broken down, and its gates are burned with fire. When I heard these words, I sat down and wept and mourned for days. And I was fasting and praying before the God of heaven. And I said, I beg you, O Lord God of heaven, the great and awesome God who preserves the covenant and the loving kindness for those who love him and keep his commandments. Let your ear now be attentive and your eyes open to hear the prayer of your servant, which I am praying before you now, day and night, on behalf of the sons of Israel, your servants, confessing the sins of the son of Israel, which we have sinned against you. I and my father's house have sinned. We have acted very corruptly against you and have not kept the commandments, nor the statutes, nor the ordinances, which you commanded your servant Moses. Remember, remember the word which you commanded your servant Moses, saying, If you are unfaithful, I will scatter you among the peoples. But if you return to me and keep my commandments and do them, though those of you who have been scattered were in the most remote part of the heavens, I will gather them from there and I will bring them back to the place where I have chosen to cause my name to dwell. They are your servants and your people whom you redeemed by your great power and by your strong hand. O Lord, I beg you, may your ear be attentive to the prayer of your servant and the prayer of your servants who delight to revere your name and make your your servant successful today and grant him compassion before this man. Now I was the cupbearer to the king. And so that's where we'll finish. Uh, We'll stop for for just a few minutes um, and then, you know, I want to go back and just explain a little bit more of the context because when we, we left Second Samuel, um, we left with, you know, David being um, king and his, his time as king is coming to a close and then his son Solomon is going to take, you know, the kingdom. And Solomon started well. Remember when he was young, he prayed to God for wisdom and it was granted to him and he was you know, the wisest of kings, and, and God gave him great wealth, and his kingdom was extremely successful. But even though he knew what was right, he still did what was wrong. And he took for himself, you know, as he made alliances with different nations, instead of just trusting in God for protection and trusting in God um, for his provision, he, he sought, you know, in his wisdom... In his own mind, hey, I can make alliances with these different nations. And, and he did what was common, what kings commonly did in those days, which was, you know, to, to you know, a king of one nation would, would have a wife that would be the daughter of a king of another nation or a relative of a king of another nation. Because, you know, when you, then when you have a disagreement, you know, you're less likely to go and fight when it can hurt your own family members, you're more likely to go through some protocols of like, let's make a truce and let's not have our armies fight it out and potentially, you know, our own flesh and blood die at each other's hands. So this has commonly been done in ancient, you know, times and um, it's less common, you know, today. 
as, our, as, as many systems are a little bit um, different. But, you know, our, our newer systems are, are, are relatively new, you know, compared to just how things were, you know, been done for thousands of years. And so, you know, King Solomon, think, you know, takes the same approach. And so he marries, you know, women from these different, you know, nations. And with that, they bring their beliefs and their gods to him, and he begins to worship false gods. We see at the end of his life, he comes to his senses, but for a period of time there, he has done this, and there's a consequence for this. And then the, the kingdom is, is divided between the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom. And even in our studies, we were looking at King David, we saw um, the beginning points of tension in King David's you know, reign and how those, that division went with the ten northern tribes um, against the two southern tribes of Judah and Benjamin. And so we saw that beginning to happen. But what had, when Nehemiah prays and says, you know, this is what happened because we didn't keep your ways, he's referring back to Deuteronomy chapter 28 where God really clearly lays it out in this covenant with, with Moses. It's like, you know, if the people, you know, are, are faithful, then God is going to protect them from their enemies. He's going to provide for them everything that they need. But if they are not faithful, then he's going to scatter them among the nations. So the northern kingdom falls first in 722 BC to the Assyrians. The southern tribes, the, you know, and it's only two, but they're stronger, uh, Benjamin and Judah, they hold on to 586 BC when the Babylonians are allowed to come in and to take them off into captivity. There are, there are some who are left behind, um, but just th- there think about uh, you know, biblical name you may know in terms of, you know, Daniel. Um, you know, we know Dan- Daniel in the lion's den. That's from that period of time with the Babylonians coming in and taking Daniel along with um, those, you know, we talk about Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego and their stories. Um, but when the Babylonians fell to the Persians in 539 B.C., many Jewish people were, were able to return to their homeland. First with Zerubbabel in 538, another group led by Ezra in 458, and now in this scene, we're about 444 B.C. Um, these are, this is all, you know, hundreds of years before Jesus is, before Christ, before Jesus is on the earth. And, ne- and Nehemiah, you know, learns the state of those who had returned with Zerubbabel and had returned to, you know, with Ezra and how things are in the city of Jerusalem, and it causes him to weep and to mourn, to fast and to pray. Uh, and so I want to go back again. We read it once, but I want us to pay attention and, and go through it again, ver- beginning in verse 4, where he says, When I heard these words, I sat down and wept and mourned four days. You know, it's one thing to hear some news. You know, sometimes you get some bad news and it makes you tear up a little bit. It's another thing to get the sort of news that causes you to weep and to mourn 
for days and then to to fast to to not eat any any food and I mean just understand when when the Bible talks about fasting. People have their, you know, can make different definitions for, for fasting today. But when the Bible talks about fasting, it's literally about food, and it's literally not eating anything for a period of time, whether that's a day, two days, three days, four days, five days, whatever that period of time is, it means no food, period. And so there he is in this state, weeping, mourning, no food, praying before the God of heaven. He is intently serious. And as in this prayer, he says, I beg you, O Lord God of heaven. He is pleading. You see Nehemiah's heart here. He has moved to the core of who he is. It has reached him at his, at his essence. Who he is. I beg you, O Lord God of heaven, the great and awesome God. You see, he starts there. He starts there. With understanding that, you know, he can beg. He doesn't have the power to change the situation. He has the, he has the ability to beg. He's a beggar before God. Now, Remember, Nehemiah says he's the cupbearer of the king. And yes, it's a position of a servant, but it's a high-ranking place that he has attained in the Persian kingdom. Like His job has, is, is, a, is of high responsibility, and he is in the presence of the king. So it's not like you know, he's you know, out feeding the pigs. But yet, he is extremely humble before God. And he acknowledges who God is. The Lord God of heaven, the great and awesome God. So you have who Nehemiah is, who God is. And there's a great distance between the two in terms of, not in terms of their intimacy, but in terms of their, their power and ability who preserves the covenant and loving kindness for those who love him and keep his commandments. You see, this was a conditional covenant that God had made with Moses and the Hebrews that, you know, if they did this, God would respond this way. If they did the other, God would respond another way. It's a conditional covenant. It's based on them obeying the commands. Now, our covenant in Jesus is different. Because what the whole, and I'm just going to throw this out there this morning, the, the, the main, one of the main purposes of the law is just to teach us that we're lawbreakers. It's one of the main purposes of the law. That we are guilty before God. And that we need something better than, you know, try harder to be a better you. We need a miracle. We need the miracle of God's grace in our lives. We need Jesus to come and pay our debt that we can't pay. We had no ability to pay. 
and these laws, you know, I mean, and, and the same thing works out today. It's just, it's just in the news here recently in, in Indonesia, there's, you know, they had, the, you know, um, Islamic country, and they had this group of people, and they said, you know, we're, we're making these laws, and one of the key people in making this law that says, you know, if somebody commits adultery, if the people who commit adultery, they're going to be caned publicly. And then this guy gets caught in adultery <laughs> and finds himself the one being caned publicly. See, the law doesn't keep you from sinning. The law just lets you know that you're a sinner. But there is a difference, and this is recognized by God, because I don't believe that God's, you know, even for Israel and their judgment here, God's expectation for them was, was not perfection, but they had gone so far as to worship other gods. You see, there was a line that they had crossed, and they had gone so far away from the commands of God that they had to be... Um, disciplined in this way. And Nehemiah recognizes this and he asks God to listen and he confesses. Now what does he confess? The, the sins of the sons of Israel which we have sinned against you. I and my father's house have sinned. Now, we aren't told anything specifically that Nehemiah had done wrong. Now, I mean, uh, you know, with the law, he's, I mean, he's going to be guilty of something, right? You know, we to let people know that they need a savior. What things we use the law for? Still use the law today. Somebody, you know, I'm basically, when somebody says to you, let me back up just a second. You ask the question, what's going to happen to you when you die? Well, you know, I, I hope I go to heaven. Well, why? Well, because I'm a pretty good person. Okay. Let's talk about that. Have you ever told somebody something that's not true? Have you ever lied to someone? Now, most of people are going to be honest enough to say, well, of course. I mean, anybody in here going to say they haven't ever lied to someone? It's like, okay, well, what do you call somebody who tells lies? Well, a liar. Have you ever taken anything that doesn't belong to you in your life? Or kept anything that didn't belong to you? Hmm. Okay, yes, I have. What do you call somebody who takes things that don't belong to them? A thief. Okay, so we now, you're a liar and a thief, and we haven't gotten even to anything interesting yet. I mean, we've just taken like two of the most potentially tamest commandments, and you're already a liar and a thief. It's like, do you really want us to go through the other, the rest of them? Do you want to go through the others? Or you just want to go ahead and say, yes, I'm a sinner. 
that's the reality of it, folks. Because, you know, we can say, yes, I'm good relative to, you know, this person who did these terrible things and is in prison for it. But that's not the standard. You don't get to stand before God and say, you know, I was better than 57% of the other jokers that have been on this planet. Like, that's not going to cut it. And it doesn't matter if you can say, I was better than 99.9999999% of other human beings on this planet. That's not going to cut it either. Because the, the comparative point is God himself. And he is holy. So you can be better than 99.99999% and still be lost. Because the standard is God's holiness for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. That's the basic, you know, one of the basic things of, of the gospel is that we are sinful. And a person who says, well, I'm not bad enough to need to be saved by Jesus dying on the cross for my sins has too much pride to come to God. And so actually that pride... I mean, I think that's significant before God. So Nehemiah, though we don't have any record of him doing these terrible things, says, I have sinned. My father's house has sinned. All of my people have sinned. We are sinners. Like, we are guilty. And he doesn't try to say, you know, because even here, he doesn't try to say, we're better than the Babylonians were. Look at the atrocities they committed. He doesn't say, look at, we were better than the Persians were, are. You know, they're the ones in charge now, they're the ones he works for. We're better than them. Look at all the terrible things they've done in the world. We're better than the, this nation or that nation. No, because he knows that's not his comparison point. His comparison point is God. But notice this. Nehemiah grabs hold of the promise of God in verse 9. He says, if, if you return to me and keep my commandment and do them, those, though those of you have been scattered were in the most part of the heavens, I will gather them from there and I will bring them to the place where I have chosen to cause my name to dwell. He grabs hold of that promise of God. God, this is what you've promised. See, this is really when somebody comes, still today, when somebody comes to Jesus, to the gospel, they say, Lord, I'm a sinful person. I deserve nothing, but I'm going to grab hold of your promise. If I believe in you, Jesus, you're going to save me. Like They grab hold of the promise of God. Because in the promise of God, there is life. They are your servants and your people whom you redeem by your great power and by your strong hand. And so, again, he's, he's going back to the promise of God. And he's going back to the history and says, God, remember how you brought us out of Egypt. That's what he's talking about there. You know, by your strong hand, you've, you know, you, you have brought us out. You have delivered us. You have redeemed us. You have caused, this is where you caused your name to dwell. What's he referring back to? Jerusalem. 
that there his name would be great. And I see a pattern here in the Bible when people are asking God to move into work on behalf of themselves and, and particularly of others. And there's an appeal to the name of God. You know, as we pray for the gospel to go forward throughout the world, we, you know, part of that prayer is so that your name would be glorified. So that your name would be lifted on high. That's the ultimate motivation of those who are close to God in both the Old Testament and the New Testament. The ultimate motivation has to do with God's glory. Yes, in the Old Testament, you know, for people to know God and for people to be, you know, in relationship with him and for, for Israel to be secure. And in the New Testament, certainly more of a shift to, you know, that the, that the good news of Jesus would go forward and that people would re- be redeemed from all places. I mean, again, don't mess up and misunderstand people from many different places in the, in the Old Testament, many different ethnicities coming to the Lord there as well. But that emphasis, that shift, you know, it's really the people, the people, the people, but why? It's ultimately for God's glory. Because notice in verse 11, he says, O Lord, I beg you, may your ear be attentive to the prayer of your servant and the prayer of your servants who delight to revere your name. Who delight to revere your name. And I just want to encourage us this morning that as we worship the Lord, as we have more time in just a little bit to, to sing praises you know, to our God and to say our prayers to our God, that we would enjoy revering the name of God. That we would delight in that. And then at the end, at the end of all of that, you know, his, you know, he, we've got some verses here. You know, this is verses 4 through 11. And the verses primarily are about, God, you're great. This is, and this is the progression. God, you're, you're great. I slash we are sinful. We need your help for your name. And then the end is, and make your servant successful today and grant him compassion before this man. Now I was the cupbearer to the king. At the end it's like please do this. It's powerful. In chapter 2 it says and it came about in the month Nisan in the 12th 20th year of King Artaxerxes, that wine was before him, and I took up the wine and gave it to the king. Now I had not been sad in his presence. So there's about four months in the gap between when Nehemiah first hears this news and when he takes 
this opportunity. It says, I've not been sat in his presence. It, it appears that, um, you know, people want to say, well, perhaps the king had been away or this or that. I, I personally, that, that phrase where he says, I, no, I've not been sat in his presence. I, I think that, you know, Nehemiah, before he goes to do his job, is washing his face and getting himself ready and doing his work. And then as soon as he leaves there, he's going back to his knees. So so the king said to me, why is your face sad, though you are not sick? This is nothing but sadness of heart. Then I was very much afraid, and I said to the king, let the king live forever. Why should my face not be sad when the city, the place of my father's tombs, lies desolate and its gates have been consumed by fire? So there's a couple of things I just want to bring out here real quick. One is, you know, we see the Lord's at work because the Lord causes Artaxerxes to realize that this sickness, you know, he's sad, but he's not like got, a, got the flu or something, you know, he's... You know, he's, he's down in countenance, like, this isn't about sickness, this is about something's going on with you. And we can tell the difference, right? With people, like, but, but he recognizes. Okay, Nehemiah is different today than he normally is. And perhaps after these four months, like, it's just like Nehemiah, you know, is just at the point where he can't hold it all in anymore. And he's, it says this. Then I was very much afraid. See, Nehemiah's human. He's not a superhero. He's an, he's an ordinary guy who's been you know, put in this position where he has this, this opportunity and this privilege of access to a very powerful man. I mean, the Persian Empire is massive massive. And just on that real quick, you understand, Nehemiah's a thousand miles, over a thousand miles away from where he wants to be. He wants to be in Jerusalem. He's over a thousand miles away. He's not like, oh, I just got to go hike for a couple hours and I'm at my spot. It's a massive empire. And he's afraid. I was very much afraid. But notice this. I was very much afraid. I said to the king. See, it's, it's normal to have fear. But fear has to be overcome. You know, when we have fear, that... There is no bravery without fear. You understand that? There's no bravery without fear. Without having something to overcome, there is no bravery. I've missed a few, but most every morning, since any of my kids have been able to talk, I say to my kids in the morning, what are, we gonna, what are you going to do today? 
And they know the response is, be brave and obey. What is, what is the anticipation in that statement? The anticipation is that there are going to be days, there are going to be times, there are going to be moments in life where you have reason to be afraid, where you have reason to fear. And if that wasn't the case, then I wouldn't need to say, be brave. I wouldn't need to encourage them to be brave. Because the reality is, there are going to become moments and times in their life where the normal human response is fear. And that's the response they should have, because that's what's natural and normal. But then what do you do with it? And so then, that's where the be brave and obey. Because the second part of that is, it's not just about like pulling yourself up by your bootstraps and saying, okay, now I'm going to do this thing. But it's, what does God want me to do in this situation? What does obedience look like in this situation where there is fear? Be brave and obey. Folks, that's not just for my kids. That's for you and me as followers of Jesus. What are you going to do today? Be brave and obey. What are you going to do today? Be brave and obey. See, that's what Nehemiah does here because he has great reason to fear because he's talking to the dude that's just like, you know, I don't like sad guy. You know, Nehemiah, I liked you when you were like happy giving me the wine, every, you know, when it was your turn to do that, like when I needed that, when I asked you for the wine, I mean, you're, gonna, you're the cupbearer, you take it, you make sure it's not poison so you die instead of me, but you have a smile on your face through the whole process because that's your job. Like, I like that Nehemiah. The Nehemiah that comes to me and is sad, I really don't like that Nehemiah. So, um, hey, guards, just take him out and take off his head and just let everybody know, you don't, you don't be sad in here, because that, that kind of gets me down. Like, Artaxerxes can do that, because he's the king of the empire. He can say to any person in that room, you dead. And they're dead. Like, that's how things roll by the... There's not a court. Nehemiah is not going to go to trial and be like, hey, did you have reason to be sad in front of the king? There's nothing like that there, folks. Like, he has a real reason to fear. Because he can lose his head. And instead, you know, I mean, and, he, and here's the thing, because he has been connected to God in prayer, that's what gives him the ability to be brave in this moment. Because he has asked God to, that Artaxerxes would have compassion on him and his situation. And now he has this opportunity. So you see, him taking advantage of this opportunity is connected to his prayer life and to his intimacy with God. If that's not there, if, 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 if chapter 1 isn't there, this doesn't go the same in chapter 2. 
If the chapter one of prayer, of confession, of intimacy with God, on face before God, of prayer and fasting, and all these things isn't there, chapter two just don't happen, folks. But here's the problem for us. The problem for us is we think we can have chapter two without having chapter one. You see, we think we can shortcut it. And then we can have the power that Nehemiah displays in chapter 2 without the prayer that Nehemiah has in chapter 1. We think we can shortcut it. But we can't. Because even in the New Testament, every time you see God work mightily, there's prayer. There's prayer. There's the prayer of his people. Notice this. So he says this case. It says, the king said to me, what would you request? Verse 4. So I prayed to the God of heaven. That's a pretty quick prayer. So I prayed to the God of heaven. And I said to the king, If it please the king, and if your servant has found favor before you, send me to Judah, the city of my father's tombs, that I may rebuild it. Then the king said to me, the queen sitting beside him, how long will your journey be, and when will you return? So it pleased the king to send me, and I gave him a definite time. And I said to the king, if it please the king, let letters be given to me for the governors of the provinces beyond the river, that they may allow me to pass through until I come to Judah. And a letter to Asaph, the keeper of the king's forest, that he may give me timber to make me beams for the gates of the fortress, which is by the temple, for the wall of the city, and for the house to which I will go. And the king granted them to me, because the good hand of my God was on me. That's powerful. The king says, what do you want? says, I want to go back and rebuild it. I want to go build it. I want to rebuild it. And so he asked for a few things. One is he knows. He knows ahead of time that there are people surrounding them that don't want to see Jerusalem rebuilt. So he needs some letters from Artaxerxes, when he goes through these places, when he crosses over, I think it's the Tigris River here, which he's got to get 200 miles to there, he's going to cross over, he's going to go, that he goes into these places, these provinces, all the way back to Judah, that there are going to be people who are going to let him pass, instead of saying, what are you doing here? And fight against him, or try to kill him. So he has these letters of protection, because he has the empire. God's using the empire, the Persian empire, to protect him as he goes. Then he asks, well, to rebuild this, we're going to need some, you know, for the gates, for some other things, including my house. (laughs) He throws his house in there. I love that. He's like, I'm going to need a a place to stay. So I'm going to need some wood for a house too. So if if I get a letter, if I get some letter to the one in charge of the king's forest, some wood would be great. 
So he gets a bunch of wood. That's awesome. And it says, and the king granted them to me. Why? Because the king's a great guy? No, because the good hand of my God was on me. He knows God is working and moving in this situation. It says, then I came to the governors of the provinces beyond the river and gave them the king's letters. Now the king has sent me officers of the army and horsemen. When Sanballat the Hornonite and Tobiah the Ammonite official heard about it, it was very displeasing to them that someone had come to seek the welfare of the sons of Israel. But notice here, the king even did more than what was asked. He also sends some military might and some horsemen with him to go, to to guide him on his journey. He got even more than he asked for. It reminds me of Ephesians 3. To God who is able to do more than we can ask or imagine. He hadn't anticipated that. He gets even more. It's awesome. But there's going to be opposition along the way. There's going to be opposition along the way. Y'all, do we understand that? There's always going to be opposition to the Lord's work, full stop. There's always going to be opposition. Well, let let me put an important caveat, caveat on that. Until Jesus settles final accounts. But until then, there's opposition. Looking at the time. And I think we can hold off. We're going to hold off to next week to get through the rest of two. But I just want to leave us with just being reminded that there was a real problem that Nehemiah was burdened and that being burdened caused him to pray a lot and to make personal sacrifice and to be prepared for the opportunity that God would give him to make a difference in the situation, the opportunity to be brave and to obey. And he took it. He did it. And that this huge hurdle has been overcome. But as we get a glimpse of here, that was just the first hurdle. There are going to be more problems. There are going to be more obstacles. 
And, and in our lives, I want us to be careful because sometimes when we go through something difficult um, or we've overcome something through the, I mean, God has worked in us and something has been overcome in our lives and we've come out on the other side. And yes, we have a lot to be thankful for, but that's not the time to put the guard down. We have a lot to be thankful for, but we still have to remember that was one scene in a bigger context. And that there's going to be more opposition to follow. And, you know, I think that's what we see. See it all over the world. See it here. See it in Mexico. See it in Iraq. All the places where I'm, you know, I keep up with things and intimately connected with people on the ground. And when you see spiritual success, there's, yes, there's celebration, but then there's going to be another trial to follow. There's going to be more difficulties to come. So don't let the guard down. Be prepared. You know, we are in, the scripture tells us that we're in a real spiritual battle. No, we are not, um, you know, cupbearers for a, a king that can either grant us something or take off our head or whatever the case is. But we are you know, if you're a follower of Jesus this morning, you are in a spiritual battle, and there are real forces of darkness at play. And we have to be reminded of that, folks, because I think in our cultural context, a lot of times the enemy just wants us to downplay all of that and to kind of ignore all of that because we can just be distracted enough to not be in tune with what's happening spiritually just be distracted enough and you know just kind of have a well i mean that's not that bad is our approach to life and to sin and things well it's not that bad and folks i'm going to say that that's for our spiritual health and for our that's just as dangerous. Folks, that's just as dangerous as being in a place where it's like, it's obvious. There's a spiritual darkness all around and people are in witchcraft and, and you know, all sorts of, of things. Just this morning, um, I'm talking to um, Brother Jaime in, in Mexico and his oldest daughter's on um, one of the Operation Mobilization ships and they're... Um, landing in this port in Brazil, and tomorrow there's this group is supposed to meet the ship, um, a group of, you know, witch doctors and people doing voodoo and, you know, all these things, like saying, you know, don't, like basically, you know, just in, in overt, outright opposition to the gospel of Jesus coming into that place. Like, that's obvious, like that, what do you do with that? Well, if you hear about that, if you're on that ship, what do you do? I mean, you pray. You say, God, we know you're stronger. And we pray that, you know, your gospel will go forward and that people be freed from their bondage. Even these people that are doing these things would be freed from their spiritual darkness and bondage, right? But what about when it's not obvious? When it's much more subtle? See, then we can be kind of like, well... 
not that much going on. And we can be complacent. I think that's actually more dangerous to us spiritually than to be on the ship going to the port and knowing that there's people that are trying to like cast spells and do all sorts of wild things. Because one, you're more likely to take your precautions and to be ready for. And the other, you're more likely just to get blindsided. So let's be serious before the Lord. Let's take the heart, Nehemiah's heart, this morning. And take our time as we prepare our hearts, as we take the bread and the cup this morning, as we remember Jesus and what he did for us at the cross, and to give thanks. Because he took us out of, if you're a follower of Jesus this morning, he took you out of kingdom of darkness, put you in kingdom of light. Man, that's something to be thankful for. You understand that's far better than what, I mean, what Nehemiah gets in this book is awesome. But what we have in Jesus is so much better. Of all people to give praise, man, those of us in this room have so much to give praise to God for this morning. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we come to you now. We thank you um, that in your word there is life and there is instruction and there are ordinary people who do heroic things because they are connected to you. And Lord, that inspires us. And Lord, I do pray for myself and for each one of us that we would in your power, that we would be brave, that we would obey. Help me, Lord, even this week to do that. Lord, before we take that bread and that cup this morning, help us examine our hearts and, Lord, show us anything in us that's not pleasing to you and help us to confess that and put it aside. We could take that bread and and cup this morning with a clean heart and conscience before you. Jesus, we're thankful that you loved us enough to go to the cross, to be obedient to to go to the cross and to do that for us. And we give you thanks. And Lord, may this time strengthen us for the days ahead. And we ask it in your name, Jesus.